You may be seated. So we're making our way through a sermon series in Psalms, 15 Psalms that are called the Songs of Going Up, Songs of Ascent. Today we're in Psalm 131, 132. If you have your Bible, turn with me there, and if not, it's printed for you there on page 11 in your bulletin, I think. Psalm 131 is a song of a sense of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, in which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I've desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is the word of the Lord. We ask for the Spirit's work in our hearts, Lord, as we hear this now in Jesus' good name. Amen. So it's often remarked upon this strange phenomenon that I know many of you have experienced, which is that when you've been driving a route for a number of times, you can actually get to a place where you can drive it, like the, the, the road almost drives itself. I, I've had a few dangerous moments in my life where I w have awakened someplace I was not intending to drive because I was just on my way <laughs> by habit. And there's been quite a lot written about the power of habit. You know, this can be bad, but it can also be very good that your mind and your body and your emotions get into ruts. And that's not always a bad thing. And after a while, your body is just going to have certain responses. Your emotions are just going to go there. Your mind is just going to start thinking down that road. And you have to wonder if after years of taking these pilgrimages, so there would be three pilgrimages each year the Israelites were supposed to take. You have to wonder if three times a year, like the, you say this, you do this for a decade, you've been, up, you've been up this road 30 times. You have to think the Israelites could have just walked this road to Jerusalem blindfolded. But they're singing these same songs every time. And so they could have also, after a while, sung these songs almost without thinking about them. And the songs, as I've tried to express it, they were like, pathways of the heart, very familiar paths by which the hearts of these pilgrims would have been lifted up. You know, they're moving toward this earthly city, but their, their hearts were, would have been lifted up to, to God, you know, to, to his, his character, 
his promises, the great things he's done, the gifts he's given to his people, their hearts would have been lifted up through these songs. And it's so valuable, you know, it's kind of like what our Nicene Creed does. By the time, I'm going to, I'll take a little guess here. By Wednesday afternoon, most of you will not remember even the text that I preached from. But I could grab any one of you on Wednesday afternoon and ask you to start reciting the Nicene Creed and you could do it verbatim because you've been doing it repeatedly for like 12 years. It's interesting. It's a pathway of your heart. You don't have to even think about it anymore. That's how these songs were for Israel. And that's why the songs are still crucial. Because our hearts, whether it's through the creed or these songs or whatever, our hearts need familiar paths. Do you find it easy to draw near to God? I don't. And our hearts need familiar paths to kind of go up toward the Lord. Because, you know, as your heart goes, so will the rest of your life go. Well, in these two psalms, I'd like you to notice they're really, really different. So Psalm 131 is an individual prayer. It's a particular person praying, and it is by far the most introspective of the psalms. The psalmist is looking inside himself. Whereas Psalm 132 is actually a public prayer, and in the public prayer, it surveys this very wide panorama of Israel's story, as we'll see. And this is the longest by far of the, of the 15 songs. And yet, as different as these two psalms are, there's an important connection between them, which I hope to point out in a moment. Now, I'm gonna call Psalm 131 a picture of composure. A picture of composure. So. Here we are in, uh, inside of a human heart as we, as we open. It's David's heart. And we're kind of inside of his soul a little bit. We're, so we're, we're shut away. You know, it's kind of like when you're alone with your thoughts. We're, we're kind of shut away from all the goings-on of the world. We're not out in the streets. We're not, we're not, you know, in the buzz. We're in this kind of secret place where only God sees inside of David's heart and soul. And what I'd like you to immediately notice when we are inside David's heart and soul is how quiet it is. I think I appreciate this because my soul tends to be quite fevered and stormy. David's soul is calm. It is composed. But I'd like you to notice, he says in verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul. That tells us it did not start this way. There's a little bit of backstory in verse 1. Oh Lord, I, I'm composed. I'm calm. Because my heart is not lifted up. What that tells us is that in David's heart of hearts, like every one of us, David faced a temptation. Now, he fought the temptation and won. But the temptation that he faced, it's as old as the Garden of Eden. The temptation was to try to be godlike. To try to be godlike. My heart is not lifted up. John Golden Gate puts this very crisply. The difference between God and us is that God never thinks he is us. Okay? The difference between God and us is God never thinks he's us. God is never confused about who's the creator and who's the creature. Who is the father and who is the child? Who is the king and who is the subject? God is never confused about that. We get confused. Our hearts get lifted up. David was tempted that way. Tempted to fancy that he was not really so dependent that he was not really so limited, not really so accountable, right, to be lifted up. And there's a flip side of this, because as you are kind of lifting yourself up, you are always trying to bring God down a little bit. So the flip side of this was David was tempted in his heart to kind of assess God, you know, assess whether God really can be trusted, 
assess whether God really must be served, really must be obeyed. You know, he's kind of running assessments on God. I've been wondering, how would God manage if he didn't have Ben Miller to assess how he's doing? You know, he might run the world into the ground. And David's like assessing, can you really trust the Lord? You know, is, is he really going to take care of you? Do you really have to obey and serve him? As his own sense of his own dependence and limitations and accountability is kind of getting exalted. And with this, he talks about his eyes being raised too high and occupying his energies with things. So what happens in this temptation is his eyes are being pulled, his energies are being pulled to wander away from his little circle of stewardship. You all know you've got a circle. This is your circle. There's all kinds of stuff outside your circle that you care a lot about and want to do all kinds of stuff about. It is not your circle. To change the metaphor, you have a lane. you got to stay in your lane. God's given you a lane. You have a circle. David has a circle. But it was tempting to think that he had grander stuff to do and grander stuff to attend to than staying in his circle and being content with what God had given to him, being grateful for what God had given to him. I've got grander things to attend to, he thought, than being patient here, being obedient here, being fruitful where God has put me. I mean, the obvious example of this, when he's a young man, you know, he's anointed as a shepherd boy, that's a famous story. What people don't often think about is for the next decade, David ends up, you know, winning the battle with Goliath and he becomes famous. And this does not sit well with the existing king, whose name is Saul, and Saul hates David, this young upstart, so much that he spends like a decade trying to kill him. And so David spends years just running for his life. He's an outlaw, like, I didn't see that coming at 18. But he's running for his life, And there are a couple of moments in that decade of running for his life when God puts Saul in a very vulnerable position where David could take him out. And twice, David says, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. God put Saul on the throne. Now, God told me I'm going to be king, and everything in me wants to grab that throne. But my heart is not lifted up. I'm going to wait for God to give me the kingdom. Now, you guys know, because you and I both, we all deal with this temptation to try to be godlike. You know that in the end, if you ever take that bait, that seductive delusion that you can somehow sort of be godlike a little bit, that the end of it is, is very cruel, isn't it? Because as anyone knows who's ever tried it, trying to be godlike is not just prideful, it's exhausting. Trying to be above your limitations, above your own accountability to the Lord, above your own dependence, what ends up happening is this imposes upon you the insufferable burden of living with no gifts, just earnings. No mercies, just your merits. No invitations from a father to come, but rather only your best guess as to where to go. You can never just enjoy being a sheep, enjoy being led by a shepherd who's greater than you, because you're busy trying to shepherd yourself. This offers the illusion of control. And then it ends up saddling you with all the stresses of trying to be in control. Which I think is very economically useful to a whole industry of so-called therapies. You ever wonder if people don't need therapy so much as they need humility and faith? Because they're so stressed out trying to be God, as it were, in their own lives. And of course, socially, it's also devastating. When you kind of have this God-likeness in your heart. It makes you either a comfort seeker, I want to sit on my throne and be served, 
or makes you a control seeker in your relationships. And anyone who's ever tried this, you know this will fill your relationships with all kinds of conflicts. You can watch this with parents. You're so busy trying to control your kids or get them out of your way so you can be comfortable that you can't actually parent as God has called you to. Eugene Peterson says this very well. He says, our lives are lived well only when they're lived on the terms of their creation, with God loving and us being loved, with God making and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us responding. And so knowing that, David has composed his soul like a child who's just finished a feeding. Sarah nursed all four of our kids, and there'd be these moments when the child was finished with the feeding. They were like dopey with milk, just lying there like, ah. Oh. There'd be these kind of quiet little cooing noises, and sometimes you'd see this pudgy little hand reach out and kind of pat mommy. Like life was just really good for a couple of minutes. Something very powerful about that scene. And David says, that's, I've got my soul composed like that. This is a picture of a soul kind of nestled into God's love. He knows his place in the love of God. He is sure of God. He entrusts his deepest needs, his deepest desires, his deepest fears, his deepest cares. He, he entrusts those to this God without hesitation. He has composed his soul. Now listen, I can stand here and say these things to you. We gotta be very real about the fact David did this under times of unbelievable stress. There's this one story, it's, one my, it's my favorite David story. Late in this decade when he's running for his life from Saul, he is exhausted. He's had to run away to the Philistines of all places to try to get some protection from Saul. Now the Philistines have kicked him out. So he, and his, like, he has like 600 outlaws around him at this point. They go home to their home city of Ziklag, and what they discover when they get there is these bad dudes called the Amalekites have come. They've burned the city down, taken all the wives and children, and run off and kidnapped them. And David's men, I imagine the air was just like blue with Hebrew obscenities. They are just done. We're following this guy He's going to get us killed. We've just lost all our families. We've lost our home. It says they were so frustrated and agonizing, they wanted to stone David to death. Just bury him under a pile of rocks in the field. And there's this crazy little one-liner. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. You think you're stressed? You are. But under those kind of stressful circumstances, David strengthened, composed himself in the Lord. No, God is here. God is working here. He composed himself. But we need to, I think, see that that is the fruit, brothers and sisters, of training. You don't just walk into that kind of stress. I don't. <laughs> and just compose yourself if you have not practiced calming your soul. So I want to ask you as you look at this psalm, how does David do it? How does he calm and compose himself? It's interesting in the psalm he doesn't say, but there's one thing we actually know for sure. David wrote psalms. David wrote a lot of psalms. David spent time, he was probably as busy as y'all, but he spent some time in his days writing these prayers about God, about God's character, about what, you know, what God has promised to us, what God has done, it's interesting, too, 
He doesn't just write about God. He writes about his sufferings. I love this in the Psalms. He gets raw and real about how bad things are, how much sometimes he just wants to die. And he pours this out in these Psalms. And he is working these things through in his soul before the Lord. Psalms are not flare prayers. Like you all and I do it too. We all have these flare prayers. Oh God, please help, you know, signed Ben. And that's kind of like my little flare prayer. Psalms are not flare prayers. They're not like quick, oh Jesus, help me. This is pouring out your soul before the Lord. Really pouring it out. Like get it down on paper and then meditating in writing on God's faithfulness. And he does this. You know, I was thinking about this. If you guys, any of you, took 20 minutes a day, 20 minutes, okay, you're, you're, you're too busy, make it 10. If you guys took 10 minutes a day, and every day for 10 minutes you wrote a letter to God, maybe if you're in the generation that doesn't write anymore, you could like just dictate it on your phone, just like have an out loud conversation to God, just pray to him, 10 minutes a day, really pour it out, get it out, details please. Who am I, Ben Miller? Pouring out who I, you know, what I'm dealing with, who God, you really spend some time with that every day, it would change your spiritual life, it would compose you, it would bring some perspective over time. You know, when you're really, 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 really stressed, what you need is not an entertainment fix. There's nothing wrong with sitting and watching a movie to chill out, you know, scrolling your phone, whatever it is you'd like. There's nothing wrong with doing that occasionally. When you are really badly stressed, like life is all over you, you do not need Netflix, you need Jesus. You need God. And the reason some Christians are so discomposed, they just like can't handle life, is because you have a better relationship with your phone than the Lord of heaven and earth. You will not compose yourself if you don't take some time before the Lord. And notice in verse 3 how, what this does to David as he's ministering to Israel. You know, when you have that kind of composure, I struggle with it, I know you do, but when you have that kind of composure before the Lord, it makes you so useful to God's people because they're suffering too. They're struggling too. And you can exhort them well, O Israel, hope in the Lord, because you walk the walk like you're wrestling through in your own heart and soul. Now, I'd like you to notice in the next psalm how Israel responds to this exhortation from David. So David's composed himself, and he says, O Israel, you've got to hope in the Lord. You all hope in God. Notice in the next psalm how they respond. So if Psalm 131 is a picture of composure, I'd like to suggest that Psalm 132 is a, what I'm going to call a, a panorama of hope. Now, I would like you to notice a couple of points of connection with the preceding psalm. These are very, very different songs. But one thing you notice is that, as I just said, David, in the end of Psalm 130, 131, he told Israel, hope in the Lord. Well, Psalm 132 is doing that. It is literally doing what David just exhorted them to do. This prayer in Psalm 132, we're not really sure when this was written. It's sometime, obviously, long after David. But this psalm writer is doing exactly what David said. He is asking great things of God because he hopes in a great God. So he's doing what David said. That's one point of connection. Another thing to notice is that in Psalm 131, we had this little window on David's composure. It's very quiet, very calm. But in Psalm 132, we have a different window. We get a window on the activity that was energized by David's composure. We get a little window on just the great works, the zealous works that came out of this great faith in David's heart. Now, a difference between the two psalms is that whereas, as I said, in Psalm 131, David doesn't tell us a whole lot about the basis for his composure. 
why he was composed. He tells us he composed himself, and he tells Israel to hope in the Lord. So we know that, I mean, at the center of his composure is God. But he doesn't really say much about God. He doesn't really say anything. He mentions God's name once. He doesn't really, like, elaborate on why it was that God made him hopeful and composed. But the writer of Psalm 132 shares David's composure, but you'll notice says a whole lot more about where that composure comes from, why he's hopeful, why he's composed. And it's because of two things, you'll notice, and these two things never fail, no matter what the circumstances might be. One of them is, in the first 10 verses of the psalm, one reason for this psalmist's hope and composure is that God honors what we do for him. God honors what we do for him. As you look to the future, that should make you hopeful. That should calm you down. Now notice a few details. The psalmist is praying sometime after David. We're not sure where in the story, Israel's later history. He's praying for God to favor his anointed. You see that in verse uh, 10. Sorry, uh, yes, verse 10. And you also see it in verse, yeah, verse 10 uh, in, in the first half of the psalm. Don't turn away the face of your anointed one. Favor your anointed one. So this is later in Israel's history. The anointed one is Israel's king. Uh, a son of David. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach. It sounds a lot like Messiah. So this is the, the king that God has put on the throne. So we don't know who it was, but the, the psalmist is praying that God will bless the, the anointed king. And the reason he's praying that is because the anointed king represents God's rule in the world. So he's thinking about God's kingdom on earth, right? God rules here in the world through this anointed king. And so in praying for the king, you're praying for God's kingdom to come. It's like in the New Testament, Jesus prays this, thy kingdom come, right? So he's looking around at God's kingdom and the anointed one, and he's praying for God to favor all of this, favor God's people, favor his king. And why does he expect God to do that? Why does he expect God to favor the anointed one? Why is he hopeful? Why is he composed? Well, you'll notice it's because he knows that God will honor what David did. All those years ago, after David swore that he was going to escort God to his rightful place in the royal city. Remember, he says in verse 1, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore, I'm not going to go to sleep again until I bring God to a proper house in the, in the royal city. Now, I just want to just pause there and just notice that and kind of marvel. Does it amaze you that long after their death, God remembers and he honors the ways that his people have sought his kingdom. You know, David was such a mensch with this. <laughs> so you think about what David did, and God remembers and honors this. David, you know, he spent a lot of time in those long years under Saul's reign, like composing himself and just waiting. But when finally God gives him the crown, he, like you see it here in the psalm, he, like, cannot live with the fact that he now lives in the royal city of Jerusalem, but God, the high king, is out there somewhere in a tent, and he vows to fix this, to go get the ark of God, that chest that represented God's throne and his presence. Now, a little detail you might remember is that where the ark was was a place called Kiriath-Jerim, uh, years and years and years and years ago, before David's time, the Philistines had actually captured the ark, and God made their lives very miserable. They like, had all these outbreaks in their bodies. It was a very ugly thing, and so they like, got very fearful about this, and they brought the ark, and they gave it back to the Israelites, and it was kept after that in a place called Kiriath-Jerim in a tent, and David's like, nope, we're going to go to Kiriath-Jerim, and we're going to bring the ark 
to the royal city. And verse 6 of the psalm suggests, we heard of this in Ephrathah. Now, that's the area around Bethlehem. So it suggests that Israel first heard of this desire that David had, maybe even while he was still the shepherd boy living in in Bethlehem after Samuel the prophet anointed him. So really early, he might have started talking about, you know what, God should be in the centralized place where his people can come to him, not off tucked away in Kiriath Jerim. But he carries on about this, you notice in verse 6, all the way until they finally get to the ark in the fields of Jaar, which is just a singular version of Jerim. So David just has this, like, let's go to God's dwelling place, worship at his footstool, bring his ark into the holy city. And David is just like on about this. Now, you remember this story, as he finally gets the ark, they put on a cart, and they start heading towards Jerusalem. Do you remember what happened on that trip the first time? This was not an easy quest, because they're, they're bumping along the road with this ark of God on, the, on this cart, and at one point, the oxen stumble, and the ark almost falls off, and there's this priest who reaches out and touches the ark, and God strikes him dead for his complete presumption in touching God's throne. David is angry about this, he takes some time to like sort it out. He goes back to the law of God. He realizes, oh, we did this wrong. God didn't tell us to carry his ark on a cart. He told us it had to be carried on poles between priests. So he repents of his sin. Later on, they get the priests, they get the poles, they carry the ark, and David finally is bringing God's throne with God's presence there. He's on his way into the royal city of Jerusalem, and he, is, he puts on this very um, less than adequate garment, and he's like leaping and dancing like a, child in front of the high king as he makes his way into the holy city. This was a hard, costly thing David did. And the psalmist prays in verse 9, Lord, David had a vision of your priests clothed in righteousness around you, your saints shouting for joy around you. God, fulfill David's vision. Bring about this blessing on your kingdom because of the hardships that David endured. So I want to ask you guys this question. Will God honor your work like that? One way of reading this text would be to say that David, as the anointed king, his work for God is a foreshadowing of his greatest son, the true Mashiach, the Messiah. The, the Greek term would be the Christ. So you could say, well, you know, this is like a picture of David working hard for the kingdom, like Christ later worked hard for the kingdom, and God remembers that, and he honors that, and so we would pray right now, Lord, extend the kingdom of Christ in the world. Why? Because of everything that he did while he was on the earth, because of his great works and his sufferings, and so yeah, I mean, we could say that, you know, David pictures God honored David, God honors Christ, but I think we do need to think about us, God honoring our work, because Hebrews 11 you guys remember that chapter in Hebrews 11 where it's called the Hall of Faith, and there's like all these people were, that are mentioned, including David, who lived by faith. And God opens up this whole gallery from like, like Abel and Enoch and Noah and through Abraham and you know, Moses and David and the kings and the prophets. And he opens up this whole gallery of Old Testament believers who worked for God, suffered for God, did great exploits for God because they believed in him, because they, 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 they lived by faith. They were waiting for God's kingdom, and they believed the kingdom would come, and so they did these great works by faith. They endured these great sufferings by faith. And the writer of Hebrews says, guys, you, and I can say the same thing to you today because it's still true, what you guys are living in, 
now that Jesus has sat down on the throne of the Father in heaven and he rules and reigns over all nations and over all powers and authorities, this kingdom you guys are living in, this is what they were waiting for. This is the kingdom, the unshakable kingdom they were waiting for. This is the unshakable city that they were waiting for. What you guys are living in is the fulfillment of their faith. You're living every day in the evidence that God remembers all of those people and honors their faith and their works. And if you're living in the evidence that God did that for the people before Jesus, how then should you run your race? If God remembers and honors the faith and works of those people, how much will he remember and honor your faith and your works now as you run and pray that he will remember you for good and bless you and bless others who've worked in his name? If God honored all that they did by faith, is he not going to honor you? He rewards those who seek him. And so we should ask God to crown the labors of the people before us in the faith who worshiped and trained children and cultivated and built and met needs and laid up resources and fought injustices and made friends and loved neighbors and bore witness in God's name. Crown their labors, Lord, and ask him to crown your labors too as you do the same. God, God honors what we do for him. But while it is really hopeful that God honors what we do for him, you will notice in the second half of the psalm, and I'll be much quicker here, that the deepest basis for the hope this psalmist has, the deepest basis for his composure, lies actually elsewhere. Because suddenly there's this kind of shocking little break in the middle of the psalm, verse 11. It is not David's vow to bring God to the city, the, the royal city. It's not David's efforts, his sufferings, that, God, that ultimately ground Israel's hope in this psalm. It is rather a second thing, which is that God honors what he has said to us. Yes, God honors what we do for him. That is a wonderful thing. But deepest basis for hope is that God honors what he has said to us. And so you notice there, the first half of the psalm is about what David swore to God. But all of a sudden, there's this kind of abrupt transition, and we, we're hearing about what the Lord swore to David. As important as it is that God remembers what David vowed and what David did, it is way more important that God remembers what he swore to David. And this actually mirrors the events of David's early reign. So after he finally receives the crown and he's ruler over Israel, he has this moment when he's, you know, so God's ark is now in Jerusalem and David's still not happy. He says, actually, there's still a problem because God is living in a tent. His ark is in a tent and I'm living in a royal palace. And so he says, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God sends a prophet. And he says, actually, David, I'm going to build you a house. You got things reversed a little bit here. And the house, as you go on in the psalm, the house, quote unquote, that God swore to give to David was not like a physical building. It was a line of kings. It was, a, as I said a few weeks ago, it was a uh, you know, Game of Thrones house, a dynastic house, a house of kings. And notice in verse 12, Look at this with me. There's a condition of this house remaining standing. If your sons keep my covenant, if they're faithful, the house will last, this house I'm going to build you. Well, this is quite sobering, isn't it? Because we know that later in Israel's history, that just went to pieces. David's sons turned out to be very, very disobedient to the Lord. And so you'll notice in verse 13 that as the psalmist is digging really deep, he's going all the way to the bottom now, where do you find hope? Where do you find composure? 
and he digs down even deeper than David's house and God's covenant with David, and he comes all the way to the simple fact that God has chosen Zion. He has elected Israel. Because Zion, this city, is like a picture. It's like a symbol of God's gathered people around him over whom he reigns. God has chosen Israel. And because God has chosen Israel for no reason except that he's chosen to, this is my resting place. I've desired to be among these people. Because that is God's desire and that is God's commitment and that is what God has vowed and he keeps his vows, he tells, he speaks in verse 17 that eventually, after all the disobedience of Israel's kings, he's going to make another horn to sprout for David, another king. He's going to give Israel the king they really need, the true anointed, the obedient one, who absolutely keep his law, do all that his father requires, and fulfill all righteousness for us. And of course, you guys know that has happened, hasn't it? His name was Jesus, the Christ, the obedient son of God. And that is why we have hope, because of Jesus, we are told that his enemies, God will clothe with shame, verse 18, but on him for all eternity, his crown will shine. That is God's promise. It cannot fail. That's the panorama of hope. Now, I just want to briefly close with this. Why does that panorama matter as we seek to compose our souls? Looking to the past, looking to the future, as God does. I think it matters very, very much in 2023 because many, many of us, brothers and sisters, have our heads so stuck in the present that we cannot see it. You're, it's easy to have your head so stuck in the present, you can't actually even see the present. Because many of us have so little sense of our history. And as we look to the future, we have such short-sighted, self-centered little visions of what you know, we want out of life in the future. Because of that constricted vision, we don't often have the panorama. What happens then is you really cannot clearly see how in the present moment, if you look at your life now from the framework of God's kingdom and God's kingdom story, if you look back at the present, what you begin to realize is a lot of really little things that don't seem like they matter at all are momentously important, viewed from that big frame. And a lot of things that we think are absolutely huge and like such a big deal and they're gonna destroy us, especially negative things that we just like all worked up about, you realize, you know what, from the big frame? These border on trivial. But you can't see it without the panorama. And that is what Psalm 132 gives us. I'll close with this quote from Psalm 132 for your encouragement. Eugene Peterson says, Psalm 132 gives us a vision into the future so that we can see what's right before us. If we define the nature of our lives by the mistake of the moment, isn't that easy to do? If we define our, the nature of our lives by the defeat of the hour or the boredom of the day, we will define it wrongly. We need roots in the past to give our obedience ballast and breadth. We need a vision of the future to give our obedience direction and goal. If we never learn how to do this, if we never learn to extend the boundaries of our lives beyond the dates enclosed by our birth and death, <laughs> 
stretch it out. We never learn to do that. We never learn to acquire an understanding of God's way as something larger and more complete than the anecdotes in our private diaries. We will forever be missing the point of things. Christian faith cannot be comprehended by examining a flash picture which has caught a pose of beauty or absurdity, ecstasy or terror. Christian faith is a full revelation of a vast creation and a grandly consummated redemption. Obedience is doing what God tells us to do in that. Psalm 132 cultivates the memory and nurtures the hope that lead to mature obedience. And so may the Lord give that to us, beloved. Amen. Bless these things to our hearts and our lives, Father, we ask in Jesus' good name.